0: This week, astronomers glimpse the dramatic death of a solar system—a likely end for ours as well.
1: So we could be seeing how our own solar system could be disassembled in the future.
2: And bacteria that break down methane and eat the very strange byproduct—that
3: is the major point. They're eating electricity, yes, current electricity.
0: Plus, the effects of temperature on the economy. This is the Nature podcast for October the twenty-second, twenty-fifteen. I'm
2: Kerry Smith, and I'm Adam Levy. Even here at the very start of the show, it's time to acknowledge that all good things have to come to an end, including, unfortunately, our solar system. But we don't need to wait around to catch a glimpse of what might happen in a few billion years. Astronomers scouring the sky have spied a dead star, a white dwarf, that could tell us about the final stages of our own sun and its planets. Planet spotter Andrew Vanderberg and his colleagues have seen fragments of rocky planet-like bodies orbiting the star. But it's more sinister than that. They're slowly being eaten by the white dwarf. Andrew spoke to reporter Lizzie Gibney about what we can learn from this ghostly system.
1: The sun is powered by the fusion of hydrogen into helium, essentially the same power source that goes into nuclear weapons, hydrogen bombs. When the sun runs out of hydrogen as nuclear fuel, it eventually starts to expand. And as it does this, it starts burning different elements like helium, carbon, and oxygen. And as it continues doing this, the sun gets bigger and bigger and puffier and puffier. But eventually it runs out of everything to burn. And at that point, the core of the star contracts until it's very, very dense. And the outer envelope, the outer layers of the star, are shed off into space.
4: And what would happen to the planets in that situation?
1: The inner planets are in a lot of trouble. Planets inside the orbit of the Earth, and probably even including the Earth, will be destroyed as the star becomes larger and essentially engulfs them. The outer planets, though, those can survive a little bit longer. What will happen to them is that their orbits might change. And when that happens, a planetary system that could have been happily stable for billions of years can all of a sudden no longer be stable and bad things can start to happen.
4: And so you've studied one particularly interesting white dwarf. Tell me about that one.
1: This white dwarf was observed by the Kepler Space Telescope. And when the data was downloaded to Earth, we took a look at it and we saw that there was a transit signature, which means usually that something is going in front of the star, blocking part of its light. And doing that periodically and we saw that this was happening every four and a half hours roughly for this star. We then decided to look at it more closely from ground-based telescopes.
4: So that that transit method that you mentioned, is that what we use normally to find exoplanets?
1: Uh, Yeah, the transit method has been very successful in finding exoplanets, especially small exoplanets over the last five years.
4: And so given that most of the planets should have been gobbled up um, in, before the star became a white dwarf, what do we think these bodies might be that are, that are still swooshing around it?
1: So we think that these bodies are probably the remnants of the outer planetary system. So if you consider, for example, our own solar system, there are the four inner planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars. And then there's an asteroid belt, which is remnants of uh, probably the planet formation process. And inside of the asteroid belt, there are a couple of really large bodies in particular. And one of them, which we draw a lot of comparisons to, is Ceres. We think that what happened is that when the orbits of the outer planets, like Jupiter and Saturn, and the orbits of the bodies and then perhaps a debris belt like the asteroid belt, like Ceres, changed, the larger planets, Jupiter and Saturn, may have perturbed or kicked one of the smaller minor planets, very, very close to the white dwarf, at which point it was broken up by the extreme gravity of the star and eventually started to spiral inwards.
4: And, and so from the data that you've got, what do we think? Do we, is, it, is it one dwarf planet-like body? Is it many? What do we see?
1: We're particularly confident in one transit signature, and that's the one that orbits every four and a half hours. But there are tantalizing hints which are telling us that it might be many, many fragments of one larger planet. This is the first time that we've seen planetary material actually transiting a white dwarf.
4: And what can we learn then from looking at systems like this? Does it give us a way of of studying the way in which the star ended or the solar system ended, really?
1: Yeah, so this is particularly exciting because of what we can learn about it in the future. So one of the things that we're excited to work on learning is what kind of dust is being emitted from these bodies that are disintegrating. You might also consider looking at the transits with a spectrograph and seeing if there are any wavelengths or any colors of light that correspond to molecules or atoms that might be uh, present in the dust or the gases coming off of these planets.
4: So might this be a way to study a possible future for our own solar system?
1: Yeah, we have these two giant planets in our own solar system, Jupiter and Saturn, So when Jupiter and Saturn are moved into a new configuration, the smaller bodies might be in trouble and they might easily be kicked inwards towards the star. So we could be seeing how our own solar system could be disassembled in the future.
2: That uplifting glimpse of the future from Andrew Vanderberg, who's a graduate student at the Harvard-Smithsonian Centre for Astrophysics. He was talking to Lizzie Gibney. The paper can be found, as always, at nature.com forward slash nature. And there's the news and views online at the same address.
0: Anyone who's tried jogging in the middle of a humid summer will know that it's harder to work at hotter temperatures. Economists, too, have noticed this trend. Hotter temperatures affect our economies, whether it's crops that don't grow so well or workers who are less efficient. And in the face of climate change, this is going to be a problem. Marshall Burke is an economist at Stanford University.
5: This is a question that people have been interested in for a while, uh, and it's a really important policy question. So if we want to make you know, good and well-informed policy decisions about climate today, we, we really want to have a sense of what climate change in the future might do to global economic output.
0: The answer seems obvious. If hotter is bad news for your fields and your workers, it'll be bad for a country's overall output. But when Burke and his team started to look at what other studies had found, they saw something weird the trend seemed to evaporate on the largest of scales.
5: Individual people or individual agricultural fields or individual manufacturing plants, these outcomes respond really negatively at hot temperatures. So at cool temperatures they seem to do okay and at hot temperatures they seem to do really badly. But then in the macro literature, so again studies looking at country level output and how it responds to temperature, we weren't really seeing these responses Uh, and in particular uh, the existing literature showed sort of no response for rich countries, which we thought was at odds with these uh, micro-scale results.
0: More heat was bad for business if a country was already hot. But richer nations, more often in cool climates, didn't seem to be suffering when their temperatures went up. The discrepancy was so stark that Burke and his team sat to work, trying to match what they saw happening on the micro-scale with the macro, trying to match the factories and fields with the economics of a whole country. They collected a ton of data, 50 years' worth, from 166 countries. Crucially, they took into account a country's starting temperature.
5: Previous studies had assumed a linear response between temperature and output. So what that means is all countries would respond the same to increases in temperature. But what we found is when you analyze the data a little bit more flexibly, you find that, that, that some countries, in particular the really cool countries, so countries in northern Europe, actually benefit, at least for a few degrees, of, of rising temperature. And then hotter rich countries, places like the US and China and Japan, they actually are harmed by increases in, in temperature. So there's this, there's this difference between uh, whether you are a cool country to start with or whether you're a hot country to start with.
0: In the cool group are countries like Russia, Mongolia and the Northern European states. Countries in the tropics, unsurprisingly, are doing worst. They're the ones that are hot to start with. In the group of hot but rich countries are the US and China, two of the world's largest economies. So next, the team used their data to predict what would happen to the global economy with future climate change. It's not pretty.
5: Our main result is that uh, by end of century, if we don't do anything about climate change, so in in a sort of business as usual warming scenario, we find that climate change could reduce uh, total global economic output by about 20% uh, relative to a world without
0: climate change. 20%, that's five to 10 times bigger than previous estimates, in part because of those large economies in hot places like the US and China. It seems like being richer doesn't protect countries from climate change, contrary to some previous theories. What's more, this 20% figure doesn't include any of the other negative effects of climate change, like sea level rise or more cyclones. Here's Michael Oppenheimer, who works on climate and policy at Princeton University.
6: It sounds like a big number. You have to put it in the context of how much the economy would grow on the whole between now and then, uh, which is, of course, quite a lot. But yeah, it's surprisingly large. It's large compared to the size of other such effects.
0: It will be crucial, Oppenheimer says, to factor results like these into overall models of the impacts of climate change.
6: If this study is any indication, we'll see that the, the quote-unquote damages due to climate change are rather larger than has been suspected heretofore.
0: Oppenheimer finds the study compelling, he says, because unlike models of the physical effects of climate, icebergs melting or drought, climate models of whole economies are less well established. Plus, the models have to be based on predicting the unpredictable, how humans will behave now and in the future.
6: Unlike climate models, which project the physical changes like the amount of warming or the amount of precipitation, in the case of impacts, we're talking about effects on human beings and, more important, how those human beings respond to the changes in, for instance, temperature and precipitation. And human response is notoriously difficult to predict. We're talking economics and social science here. And so we've needed to. Think more creatively, perhaps, about the kinds of models that would do the job.
0: Meanwhile, I thought about how I might change my own behaviour in order to be more climate-proof. And then I ran my plan past Marshall Burke. So I'll see you in Sweden then.
5: I've already bought, I've already bought land in, in northern Norway.
0: I wish that was true. Is that true?
5: No, it's not true. I wish it was true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was Marshall Burke at Stanford University. And you also heard from Michael Oppenheimer at Princeton. Find the work of Marshall and his team at nature.com slash nature, where there's also a news and
2: views, nature.com slash news and views. Last week, we mentioned a survey that our podcast hosting platform, Acast, is running. We'd love your responses as it will help us make our show even better and could help us keep it free. Find the survey at podcast-survey.com. It takes just five minutes to fill out and you could win £200 worth of Amazon vouchers. That link again, podcast-survey.com. It works on mobiles and rest assured none of your personal info will be shared.
0: Coming up, news you can use in pub quizzes with science rounds and those electricity-eating bacteria. But first, it's
7: the research highlights with Corrie Locke. Many bee populations are in decline. One possible culprit is a group of insecticides called neonicotinoids which are commonly applied to crops. But these plants only flower for a short period of time, so how are bees getting exposed to harmful quantities of these chemicals? A team in the UK has come up with a possible answer. They measured levels of the pesticides in pollen from oilseed rape plants, nearby wildflowers, and beehives. The researchers found that wildflowers had higher levels of insecticide in their pollen than crop plants. They estimated that 97% of the insecticides brought back to the beehives came from the wildflowers. The researchers published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. A researcher has discovered what makes electric eels such effective predators. These animals are known to send out high-voltage shocks to stun fish. Now a study has shown that eels also use these zaps to track moving prey by sensing the electrical conductivity of fish. A U.S. researcher presented eels with a conducting rod and a twitching fish in a plastic bag that blocks electrical signals. The eel sensed the prey's movement and struck in the direction of the fish, but then it shifted position and captured the rod instead, even when it was moving around quickly. A study shows how the eel's sensory system is similar to the way some bats use echolocation. You can find the paper in the journal Nature Communications.
2: Kerry, what did you have for dinner last night?
0: Oh, well, I made this gigantic mushroom quiche. It was delicious. Why do you ask?
2: Well, I was just wondering whether you ever thought about branching out with your recipes, try something new, you know? Often, yeah. I mean, did you have anything in mind? Well, have you ever tried using methane or, you know, pure electrical current? Hmm. Um, is that a Jamie Oliver recipe? Well, no, it's more the kind of thing, I guess microorganisms into.
0: Oh yeah, you mean like those two codependent species that live on the seafloor and jointly digest almost all of the world's methane and then when they do they get electric current out the other end and they eat it.
2: Yeah, those ones. How did you... Well, I feel kind of silly telling you this now but, well, they're these two species of microbes. They each carry out half of the process necessary to break down methane. But half a process is useless on its own, so they team up. Scientists knew they cooperated, but they didn't know how. In Nature this week, researchers from the University of Bremen may have found the answer: tiny nanowires connecting a species of archaea to a species of bacteria. The wires allow the archaea to pass spare electrons from its reaction to the bacteria. That little guy then uses the electrons to feed its own sulfate-reducing reaction. Noah Baker spoke to researcher Gunter Wegener to find out more. Noah started by asking him why this reaction, called the anaerobic reduction of methane, is important.
3: Anaerobic oxidation of methane is uh, the consumption of methane with sulfate in the seafloor. It is a process that is performed by two organisms that only together can perform this process. The anaerobic oxidation of methane is important because it is a major thing of methane in the seafloor. Basically more than 90% of all methane is consumed that way.
8: You said that there are two organisms involved in this process. What, what are these organisms?
3: The one organism is an archaea. The other organism is a bacterium, a sulfate-reducing bacterium.
8: OK, and the, the oxidation of methane is done by archaea. What, what, how does that work, exactly?
3: The archaea are relatives to those archaea which uh, produce methane. And they use the same enzymes Uh, like these organisms, but use them in the reverse manner. At the end, uh, they produce carbonate. Next to carbonate, the organisms produce something that we call reducing equivalents, so electrons or electric current. This current needs to get away from the organisms to let this process proceed.
8: And then on the other side of the coin, we've got um, bacteria which are converting sulphur.
3: On the other side, we have bacteria that convert sulphate to sulphide. For this, they also need a kind of food. And this uh, food are, again, reducing equivalents. They have to come from the archaea. But to let this process happen, they need to be somehow connected.
8: Okay, so we've got archaea on one side that are consuming this methane and producing an excess of electricity, a sort of a charge, loads of electrons. And on the other side, we've got bacteria that need to gain electricity to be able to carry out the processes they need. How do you get the electrons from one place to another?
3: That was uh, the major miracle how this process proceeds. People thought the organisms would produce a molecular intermediate. But in this case, we couldn't figure out such molecular uh, intermediates. None of the tested ones worked out. So we had to think about something else, and this was direct electron transfer, that the organisms can consume, uh, instead of molecules, they can consume current directly.
8: So these bacteria are essentially eating electricity.
3: That is the major point. They're eating electricity, yes, current electricity.
8: So you need to transfer electrons, and the way we do that um, as humans is we use wires. How do they do it?
3: Actually, also these organisms produce something like wires. The wires, in this case, are built up likely by pili. Pili are cell extensions that organisms build from one to the other to fix themselves. But in this case, the pili seem to do something else. They seem to transfer electrons.
8: Now, this seems like a very complicated solution to a problem. Why is it that the organisms do this?
3: Well, uh, I would say it's a very easy solution. Think of what organisms would do instead. They would form an intermediate in one case, on one side, and on the other side, they would consume the intermediate. Instead of this, organisms produce wires. And that is uh, quite similar to how humans do this. We build wires to connect uh, each other on the phone in um, other ways, and these organs build wires to uh, transfer energy. I think it's a very simple solution.
8: Why have we not seen them before? If these are physical objects and we can look through microscopes, why is it only now we're discovering these, these little tiny wires?
3: So first of all, these wires are really small. They're even smaller than you would be able to see them via a normal light microscope. You need an electron microscope. Even under the microscope, uh, the wire seemed to be very faint. So we had really problems to, to uh, make them appear under the microscope.
8: Could our growing understanding of how these processes work help us develop um, uh, fuel cells or batteries in the future using these organisms?
3: Well, uh, the organisms are the smallest fuel cells that we know. May we get something to know from them in terms of making even smaller batteries or even more efficient batteries that we know now.
2: That was Gunter Wegener talking to Noah Baker. To read more, you can find the paper at nature.com forward slash nature. Time now for our weekly news chat and Lauren Morello joins us on the line all the way from DC. Hi, Lauren. Now, in the press this week, Jeffrey Marcy's name has been cropping up a lot. What, why is everyone talking about this astronomer?
9: So, Jeff Marcy is a famous exoplanet hunter, but more recently he's been in the news because um, the University of California, Berkeley, where Marcy worked until very recently, um, concluded that Marcy had sexually harassed uh, multiple subordinates over roughly a decade.
2: And what was University of California Berkeley's response when they initially found out about these cases?
9: They finished their investigation in June. It didn't become public until about a week ago when the online news site BuzzFeed um, broke this news. And what Berkeley said was, because Marcy is a faculty member with tenure, we can't unilaterally discipline him. So they came to an agreement with Marcy that essentially stripped him of tenure protections, which meant that if he was found to have harassed another person, Berkeley could have summarily dismissed him. But all of this is kind of moot now because Marcy resigned on the 14th. So why did
2: Berkeley not respond more strongly, considering there were several cases involved in this?
9: That's a good question. That's one that a lot of astronomers at Berkeley and elsewhere have been asking. The school says that just because of the way due process is set up for professors, they weren't able to do this. And that really displeased Marcy's colleagues at Berkeley, Um, the graduate students in the Berkeley Astronomy Department, the postdocs, and pretty much every other faculty member in the department all issued these joint statements condemning the situation.
2: For many of us, this is the first time we've heard of Jeffrey Marcy, but in the astronomy community, he's quite a well-known name. How, how's the astronomy community responded to this themselves?
9: So, you know, it's interesting. In a lot of ways, astronomy has tried to be really progressive in addressing sexual harassment. There's a fairly small proportion of women in astronomy. Women are just have just 14% of astronomy professorships in the United States. Um, but the American Astronomical Society, for example, put together um, guidelines for its annual conference for uh, reporting with and and dealing with harassment at that conference back in 2008, and that's been a model for scientific societies and other fields. And they have a really active um, committee on the status of women in astronomy that runs uh, the Women in Astronomy blog, which offers advice to female astronomers. As far as the impact to exoplanet research, you know, Marcy's been a leader in that field. He's the principal investigator of a $100 million project called Breakthrough Listen that was announced last summer that um, intends to accelerate the search for signs of intelligent life in the universe. That project is going to go forward without Marcy. There are um, other astronomers at Berkeley who are going to take that forward.
2: Sexual harassment isn't something, of course, that's unique to astronomy. Is there anything that other scientific institutions or academic institutions in general can take away from all this?
9: This case serves notice to scientists in other fields that even if you're a prominent researcher, this kind of behavior can essentially take you down. And I think scientists in these fields are concerned about these issues and are going to weigh in if they don't like how sexual harassment cases are handled. Now, that said, a lot of sexual harassment cases are never made public, so you know, that's hard to deal with. But I think the outcry here we saw against the, the deal that Berkeley made with Marcy was, was pretty interesting and um, pretty forceful.
2: Moving on now to our second story, Canada has a new prime minister. How might this affect science in Canada?
9: So first I want to say that I think this election was a bit of a shocker. It was a really tight three-way race and uh, the election was Monday, October 19th and the Liberal Party just kind of surged ahead at the last minute. So uh, Justin Trudeau will be the prime minister unseating Stephen Harper and the Conservative Party you know, Harper hasn't had a really great reputation among scientists. He's shifted money from basic to applied research. He's cut research funding in some key areas, including environmental science and climate science. You know, researchers are, are hopeful that the Liberal Party will start restoring some of those cuts and putting more of a focus on um, science-based decision-making.
2: So there's quite a lot of optimism in the science community in Canada. Is funding for science in general definitely going to increase under the new leadership?
9: You know, I think that's hard to say. It's um, it's early days. The Liberals have made a lot of promises about increasing money for science. And I think if I were a betting woman, I'd say you're going to see increases in some areas. Whether scientists are going to get all the money they want, you know, that that's a harder question.
2: Under Harper, the last prime minister... The reputation of Canada on climate change in particular became really quite bad. Is there any hope under this new leadership things will turn around?
9: You know, I do think there's some hope for people who would like to see Trudeau and the Liberals take a stronger line on climate change. For one thing, Trudeau has said that he supports um, provincial efforts to price carbon. Um, Quebec and Ontario both have cap and trade programs. So, uh, you know, I think there's some speculation there about whether this could go national. Um, the liberals have also made some promises about increasing spending on clean energy. You know, the one thing I think that is probably not pleasing to the folks who want stronger action on climate change is that Trudeau is in favor of the Keystone XL pipeline, which uh, would be transporting oil from the tar sands in Alberta to the United States.
2: Of course, the Paris climate talks are coming up now in just a matter of weeks. Is there any hope that Canada will now be playing a different role
9: in these talks? You know, for that, I really think we've got to wait and see Canada put its emissions target for the Paris talks out in May. And I think a lot of people found that target um, disappointing. It's a lot less aggressive than the US and European targets. I'm not sure it's clear yet whether Trudeau will have time before those talks to really step in and change how things are done.
2: Great. Thanks a lot for joining us, Lauren.
9: Thanks, Adam.
2: And for more of those stories, head to nature.com forward slash news or follow at Nature News on Twitter. You could be their millionth follower. They're up to 980,691 last time I checked.
0: And if you still haven't had your fill of science news, make sure you check out the Nature YouTube channel at youtube.com slash nature video channel. Just up, an explainer of the most famous experiment in quantum physics, and one that's trying to prove Einstein wrong.
2: Thanks to those of you who email us from time to time, we always love to get your feedback. This week, Pierre DeVries tells us we're his favorite podcast, which made our year, quite frankly.
0: And Neil Rotstan got in touch to say that he and his wife have listened for years and look forward to it every week. Send us any feedback, good or bad, to podcast at nature.com or on Twitter at Nature Podcast. That's all from us this week. I'm Kerry Smith.
2: And I'm Adam Levy.